Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 171, and I sat down with Bob Zah. He is a non-cooperation draft resistor, founder of the Peace Press, a member of LA Resistance, a peace activist, and that's just some of the things he does. <laughs> He's an extraordinary individual. Uh, when I first sat down to talk with him, it was my understanding that he was a conscientious objector in the Vietnam War. And he very thoughtfully sent me this letter that I'm going to read to you. Um, he sent this a couple days after our conversation. He said, in answer to your question regarding, or he calls it CO status, the answer is no. Here's some verbiage. A man can only be reclassified as a conscientious objector if he demonstrates that his opposition to war is based on moral, ethical, or religious beliefs, not on political beliefs. The man must be opposed to all war, not only the specific war at hand. There are a number of ways for a man to persuade the board of his beliefs. First of all, he would have to explain his convictions and how these feelings affect his life in a detailed written statement. When he appeared before the board, he would answer any questions they might have. Most likely, he would ask several friends or acquaintances to report their impressions of him, either in person or in writing. He could also present historical evidence of his beliefs, such as membership in an anti-war organization or church dedicated to peace. Ideally, he would show that he has held these beliefs before he received a notice of induction. If the board members were convinced of his sincerity, they would reclassify him and the SSS or military would assign him to appropriate duty. If the board decided not to reclassify him, they would notify him of their reasons for denial. At this point, he may have the opportunity to appeal the decision based on the board's direction. Both conscientious objectors and drafted troops are required to spend a set period of time called the tour of duty in active service. Most likely, the tour of duty in a national emergency would be two years, but the president and Congress could change this. I was a non-cooperator who took the position that any position inside the system furthered the system itself. In the resistance, we refused to take any deferments of any kind. I appreciate that there was a CO position for those who wanted to take that position. However, the decision as to whether one qualified for CO status was rather weighted toward one's eloquence. So it often hinged on how well you could string together those words. What if you were not able to articulate your beliefs? I felt inarticulate even as a resistor compared to the resistors going through the court system. In the resistance, we also did draft counseling. We took classes from draft lawyers and then had office hours where we would counsel those who wanted to know about ways to avoid the draft. Our position was extreme non-cooperation, yet we did not push our position on others. We gave them all the possibilities, and these included telling them which F-draft boards were more likely to grant a CO. And lo and behold, one such draft board was in the Westwood area near UCLA. That in and itself suggests that you need a certain sophistication and wording to request for a CO. My position was to accept no designation from the selective service system. I was given a 1Y when I flunked my first physical. All I had to do was take another physical if called and I would never be taken by the draft. I sent it back, which means once again I have no selective service card and that is a felony. There were several things that brought me to the point where I wanted to go public and discuss our history and how we ended the draft. One was the Ken Berg's documentary. 
which we talk about, by the way, just a side note, um, in this conversation. Uh, he was introduced at an event, Bob was, at a Venice Community Housing event, and he was introduced as a draft dodger during the Vietnam War. But he, he says, I never dodged anything. I stepped forward and picked a fight with the government. Yet here I was decades after the war, and this person, whom I've known for decades, was unable to identify what it was that we did. Anywho, <laughs> I was a non-cooperation draft resistor. So that's his own words, and I think that's important to hear. I want to mention, we talk about this in the, in the episode, but Bob was also instrumental in the documentary, The Boys Who Said No. Uh, they're working on getting that released this year, and I've seen some of it, and it's fantastic. And it's about those who stood up and said, nope, we're not going to do this. Uh, that's a paraphrase. <laughs> so there's that. Um, the conversation we had was really quite something, and we talk, we go all, we talk about the Vietnam stuff, but we also talk about the other projects that he works with, um, SPY, which is the, the Safe Place for Youth programs. Uh, we talk about Gary Tyler, who, if those of you don't know, he was incarcerated at the age of 16 and sentenced to death. Uh, for a crime he was uh, did not commit. He was framed for that. And years later, he was finally let out of Angola prison after a lifetime of serving there. Anyway, there, we talk about all this stuff. It's really... It's really a lot and super interesting, and I put tons of links on heyhumanpodcast.com's link page. Please go check that out. Um, again, I curate that page very purposefully, and hopefully you all enjoy going through that and checking out books and movies and articles and things about stuff that I talk about with my guests. The usual stuff, uh, susan at heyhumanpodcast.com if you want to email me. Um, my main site, of course, as I mentioned, is heyhumanpodcast.com, but I also have a susanruth.com if you want to see the other things I do. Uh, if you shop Amazon, do so through the Amazon portal on Hey Human Podcast's website, because when you do it through that porthole, you help support Hey Human. Yes, I just said porthole. I didn't mean it. I meant portal. <laughs> but you get the idea. Social media, uh, of course, I'm on... Uh, Facebook and Instagram and that's for Hey Human Podcast and then under Susan Ruthism I'm on all the social media so there is that thank you for listening if you enjoy Hey Human I, I think you probably do if you're listening uh, please rate and review it on iTunes it's super helpful yeah okay let's get into this episode 171 uh, I hope you enjoy thank you for listening and let's go Bob Zah, welcome to Hey Human. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's lovely to have you here. So we met through Ruth. She keeps introducing me to fabulous people. Uh, and spent the weekend in the disenchantment booth at Comic-Con, and that was really fun. Got to chat with you a little bit. And you are, uh, you are a man of few words in many moments. Uh, and then we got to talking and... Uh, I found out that you have have quite a history, so I'd like to start at the beginning of that history, if you don't mind. Are you from California originally? Gardena. Gardena. It's, it's, it's a little south here, twenty miles south. Okay. I read um, online that it's so that in in the fifties you were anti-communism, that you were like big in that and part of that movement, and was that shaping a lot of you in the beginning? 
we were all anti-communists. They they brought uh, they brought a speaker into our junior high, Dr. No Young Park from Korea, and his speech was "Red Cloud Over Asia," and he he was a really a rabble rousing speaker about anti-communism. And you know, once he was done, I was looking under seats for communists. I wondered if my parents were communist. And, you know, I started writing about anti-communism. I submitted the same essay in, in junior high, high school, and even junior college. You know, I was just a rabid anti-communist. And then I found out other things were going on. It's interesting to me that they came into the school to, to get your brains early. Well, schools were run by usually conservative people, you know, uh, Navy officer was the head of the, uh, it was a boys vice principal and football coach and so on. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it was that unusual. Did you go to a private school? Gardena High, public. Public, okay. Seems a little unusual, but maybe not to, to, to bring politic into the something other than civics class. No, it's not unusual. And, you know, they finally stopped they would bring the army and navy in to recruit students mm. so that you were completely unaware that you might have a choice they just did a rabble-rousing speech to get you to try to sign up for the army or the marines and so on and that stopped uh, i think they put a stop to that i don't know in the last 10 or 15 years where you're not supposed to be in there recruiting so they somehow see uh, they sneak in secretly and one day my son came home from school and he goes, I, I got a job, Dad. You know, you, you don't have to bug me anymore. I got a job. There's nothing you can do about it. You know, what's that? He goes, I'm joining the Marines. And, you know, I talked to my ex-wife. She says, yeah, I've been getting these calls. But when I answer the phone, they hang up. And they were sneaking recruiters in there to secretly recruit people. What year was this? This was... Uh, 10 years ago, something like that. Huh. And, of course, the military spends a lot of money on those little films that they put in the movie theaters before movies start. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so what was the turning point for you then? If you were, where did, where did things start to change for your trajectory? Well, we had the draft, and the Vietnam War was heating up. And one, you had to register for the draft. And then we, you could see the trajectory was that you were going to end up on, on a plane going to Vietnam and perhaps a body bag. But there were ways out. There was the 2S deferment. So people went to school so you could get divert, deferred. And I got a 2S deferment. And I wasn't really that interested in school. I was interested in the deferment. And uh, this, I went to junior college, and then I, you know, I raised my grades because I couldn't even, I couldn't even qualify for a school out of high school. But my grades were good enough in junior college that I went to UCLA, and you know, I started reading about the war and re feeling that my privilege of having a 2S deferment was unfair to other people. So I sent it back to the uh, government. Said I don't want. I don't want the 2S deferment. I want to think this over. And, and that, of course, triggers a 1A deferment. Uh, a 1A, which is not a deferment. It means you're ready to be called. And during that period, I, I heard David Harris speak. 
and he said, you know, your life, your life is your tool. That's what you have to use. And uh, if you don't like our foreign policy, you need to non-cooperate. You need to pull, pull yourself out of that foreign policy. And, you know, recently he said, uh, says evil is a participatory phenomenon. It needs your assent for it to work. So you pull yourself out of that. And so at that point, I, I decided to send in my draft card, which is a felony. You have to have a draft card. It's a felony not to have one, but we publicly turn in our draft cards. And how old were you then? I was uh, 20, 20, I guess, something like that. I'm curious to know, before you heard Harris speak, uh, the, when you were thinking, okay, <clears throat> I have this deferment, it's not fair, and then the idea that really, especially for the Vietnam War, they were just carting off people in droves and that somehow your dominion over your selfhood was no longer your own. The government was able to claim you. Yes, and they had all sorts of categories to, to make that claim and to force you into moving in a certain direction. So to continue with what happened to me was, you know, I was becoming aware of it. We had the Watts riots, and I went down to volunteer after that in Watts and teach reading and so on, and I would attend these black and white encounter groups. They were really rough. Basically, what came out of that was the, the black leadership said, look, we got this, you white people. You need to go back to your schools. You need to take care of that war. We'll take care of South Central, LA, you take care of that. So I paid attention to that, and that's when Harris came around. That's when I turned in my draft card. So my particular thing was, that's a felony. And then they, uh, so they ordered me for induction. Now I had rheumatoid spondylitis. It means I'm never gonna be able to go in the service. So I, went, I took the physical and I flunked it. And so what they give you then is a 1Y deferment. And that was specifically created to keep you manipulated by the draft. Before that, Korean War and so on, if you flunked the physical, you, you had a 4F and they could never touch you again. You could do whatever you wanted. <clears throat> but the 1Y, you had to go back maybe every year and take another physical. So you were always under their thumb and guided in certain directions. And so I turned that in. That's a felony. Turned in the one Y. Then they called me for another physical. This time I refused to take it. That's a felony. <clears throat> These are five-year felonies. That and was anyone knocking on your door to take you to jail? No. Uh, they were starting to get careful about that. They, they indicted, quickly indicted the uh, first people to start turning in draft cards and refusing induction. But it became out of hand, and we ended the draft, is the way I feel. So then they, they called me for induction because I refused a physical. 1A delinquent, they called me for induction. I went down and I refused to, to be inducted publicly. Refused to get on the bus? Center. Well, I didn't, didn't get to the bus. You go inside to take the oaths and all this. I refused. And so that's another felony, potentially. So then they, they, they indicted me. Like, and I was part of the resistance. We all hung together. We took these actions together. We would turn in our draft cards together. But when it comes down to the induction and so on, that's individual. And one by one, they would pick people off. 
indict them and take them to court. And our, our uh, strategy was we wanted to defend ourselves and not use legal terminology. We wanted to say, here's what we did and why we did it. So I watched my friends go off to prison. I lived in a house full of people that were indicted and sent to prison. And then my trial came up and, uh, you know, I defended myself, which was a big deal for me because I would do anything to never speak in public, anything at all. And uh, here I am, I'm going to defend myself. And I have two, two felonies. And the judge says, are you clear that each one of these is five years and or $10,000 and they can be run consecutively? So you could go to jail for 10 years. Yes, I understand that. And I defended myself in court as many others did. What did you say to the judge when he asked you? <clears throat> well, I got to say whatever I wanted to say. I, had, I drew the best judge in the country. Judge uh, Harry Pragerson, and he uh, had had uh, three of my roommates had come to his court, and he sent the first one to prison for three years, second one for two and a half years, the third one, uh, he was going to get a two-year sentence, but he didn't, uh, he didn't turn himself in, so he just, he went on radio instead and said, I'm, I'm at KPFK, if you want me, come get me, I'll be here till three. Otherwise, I'm leaving. And uh, so I had my trial. And before my trial, Pragerson, I found out this many years later, he visits all the people he sends to prison. All of them. There is no judge that does that. So he went up to visit a bank robber at Lompoc Prison, and he was looking over the prison manifest, and there's one of my roommates, Mike Schwartz. And he told me, he says, I thought he was picking corn in Arizona because generally when you were sent to prison, you were sent to Safford, which was minimum security, three foot high fence. If you want to climb over it and escape, go ahead. You're in the desert and we'll track you down. <clears throat> but um, Schwartz was in Lompoc and he was in the hole in solitary. And uh, so Pragerson went and visited him, and he didn't like what he saw. And he asked Schwartz if he wanted out, and he goes, I'm fine. I'm fine in here. And my other roommate, Richard Perfumo, he's also in the hole at Lompoc. And two and a half years, he's in the hole, solitary, and it was actually a safe place to be. Pragerson talked to him. And he said, no, I'm fine. I'm fine in here. But Pragerson came back to L.A., and apparently he filed his own writ to, to bring Schwartz back to court and uh, release him. And when Schwartz came to court and I was there, he wouldn't stand for the judge. They had to pick him up by his armpits, stand him up. And then the judge said, you know, case dismissed. And Schwartz he saluted him and said, thank you, Your Honor, and he left. And he came to my trial. <clears throat> so um, I defended myself, and one of the things I said was, I admitted right off the bat, I violated this law. I refused induction on this date. And, uh, but I want you to understand that I'm not a draft dodger. I, I'm not even qualified for the service. I have rheumatoid spondylitis. I had a 1Y, I turned it in. I, I cannot cooperate with the draft, 
And then I explained why. And part of it was what you mentioned, how you're being manipulated. And I talked to them about the one why. Then I talked to them about the, uh, I said they had a, they had a date where after, I think it was August 26, 1965, if you were, if you were married bef uh, before that date, you were deferred just for being married. And so people were lined up around the blocks in, in Las Vegas and states to quickly get married, not because we're in love and we want to get, but in fear of the draft, in fear of the consequences. So I pointed that out. Then the deferment was only offered if you were to have a child. So now people are pumping out children because they want that deferment. That's a hell of a way to live. That's not life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So I pointed that out. Now, but I had violated the law. I was, um, the judge convicted me of refusing to take a physical, which is five years. <clears throat> and but he acquitted me of refusing induction. He looked for a loophole, which I didn't see there was a loophole, but he felt that he could acquit me of that. And then by acquitting me of that and convicting me of the other, he didn't feel compelled to send me to prison, which they had all agreed to do, send you to give you two or three years in prison. So he uh, ordered me to work in the national interest and I refused. I said, I work at Peace Press. We print for the Communist Party, Angela Davis, Daniel Ellsberg, and uh, to me, that's the national interest. So I, I refused. They didn't do anything about it. In fact, years later, they sent me a pardon. So that's what happened with, with the draft. And we, we ended the draft, and that's that's unknown. The, the wars that are going on, on now, there's no, there's no draft. Therefore, I think we're short in the area of awareness mm. of people who are the age where you go in the service that we're unaware of our foreign policy. But we had to pay attention because we'd be on a, a plane to Vietnam. And that's what caused us to react against it. And in a bag coming home. Um, yes. I would like, if you could, to go into a bit more detail of the We Ended the Draft, because I think a lot of people listening don't know what was going on at that time. Um, and the fact that all across the nation, in solidarity with each other, there were huge movements of people making grand displays of burning the card, tearing the card, stating their name. And can we, can we talk about that a bit? Yes. It was all Gandhian direct action nonviolent. You explain what you're going to do and, and you do it. You don't try to trick anybody, you just, you just do that. Now there were various kinds of actions going on. There was Stop the Draft Week where the resistance, as we were called, did our nonviolent civil disobedience up in Oakland. I wasn't there, but people blocked buses and so on, and they were arrested and sent to prison. And then the more violent elements came in and they started like, you know, rioting and battling the police and so on. We were not part of that group. We never yelled at soldiers going to or coming back. In fact, we would take, uh, you know, we'd get the day old bakery goods from Vandy Camps. We'd go to the airport and hand out cakes and pies to returning servicemen. Uh, 
Of course, that's not what the rhetoric was. The rhetoric was that you were all anti-soldier. And it's amazing the wag the dog spin that can be put on. But we were the resistance. Mm -hmm. We were an entity that we pretty much responded the same way. We had respect for other people. And, you know, we, we still do. So um, it, it became came to the point where the government really, they, they just couldn't get people to submit to the draft anymore. Now, I went down to the federal building every Wednesday, and, and I picked up the indictment list. I have them with me. Hmm. Right and now? Yes, I do. Oh, wow. I carry them because if I speak in public, I want to show that when I speak, I'm telling the truth, and I have it with me. <laughs> so what what that shows is that 35% of all the federal indictments in this central district, it's called the Central District 9 or something, they were for select, selective service violations. You have bank robbers, you have car thieves, you have illegal immigrants, but the biggest component of indictments was for refusing to submit to induction, failure to submit to induction, not showing up for induction, it's 35%. Were the prisons already starting to get overloaded as well with all these dissenters? Yeah, they, there was no way they could handle it. There were, uh, I think about around 3,000 people went to prison, but there were thousands of people that refused induction. They couldn't handle it, so they buried it, and it's still buried. So two years ago... Buried? I, explain what you mean by that. They well, buried. the story of draft resistance is not out there. Ken Burns the well-known documentarian, did an 18-hour presentation on Vietnam. It's on PBS. Funded by the Koch brothers. Yeah, well, David Koch and the Bank of America. And they never mentioned draft resistance. He didn't want to upset some people, I, I have a feeling. Yes, and that's, that's intentional. So there's really no history of that. The government doesn't want people to know that 35% of the federal indictments in this area and more in the Berkeley area were for non-cooperation with the draft. They well, don't the government want is, prides itself on convincing the populace that their voice doesn't matter. And so if history shows that the voice does matter... That's certainly something that they're going to kibosh as fast as possible. Yeah, that's what they, you know. So I, I co collected all those indictment lists. And as I said, I have them right here, right <laughs> now. So um, that was never in the papers, ever. No, no news like that was ever made the papers, uh, nor the amount of people that were refusing induction. Some of the trials made news, you know, uh, when people would go to trial, David Harris, uh we had a non-registrant here who um, he refused to register. That means he was politically conscious very early on. I wasn't. So he was conscious enough. He goes, I'm not registering. That's a crime. And when they, ind they, uh, they indicted him and they, he had to put up some bail money and then they never did anything about it. So he finally went back and he said, look, give me my money back or take me to court. So they take him to court. And so I think he saw the movie Beckett the week he was going to court and he decided, I'm not gonna submit to the court. So he, he sends his mother in the day of his trial and she reads a statement to the judge that 
that Greg Nelson does not recognize the courts. And Can you be present in absentia like that? Is that, or did he care? He probably didn't care. <laughs> you know, what, well, what he, what he did was he says, I'm going into sanctuary. And so he picked a church, and we all went down to the church, and he was chained to the altar, and then there were a bunch of us chained to him. All of this is a conspiracy. And uh, what conspiracy is breathing together. And that's what the government is really afraid of, is the breathing together of people. So for me to jaywalk is like a, an infraction, but for me to sit down with you and talk about some group jaywalking, that's a conspiracy we're breathing together. And that's what the resistance was. It's so interesting. Together. I read an article, uh, a science article, that said that in a movie theater, that heartbeats will sink, and the the whole of the theater, the heartbeats and the breathing will sink together, without any indication of, you know, trying. It just happens. Please send that to me. I'd love to read. <laughs> Isn't that. that interesting? Yes. I love that idea of breathing together. When we there was a one case we had in Arizona where we all went into court and we all intentionally breathed together. We had like an Indian guru with us and we breathed in and out and in and out and in and out. And, you know, we had magical results as, as, as a result of it. How did it's, your family feel about the fact that you were standing up against this? Well, my dad down against went this? out for pork chops when I was 16. He said, I'll be right back. He didn't come back. So. You're the guy that, that everybody talks about that has that story. I mean, that everybody uses that as a mythology of the dad who says, I'm going out for smokes, and then doesn't come back. Holy cow. <laughs> <laughs> this was pork chops. So, uh, wow. anyway. Any, have you talked to him since that? We can get into that story. Let me finish this. Okay. That, that's an incredible story right there. Yeah, okay. But, uh, and my mother, uh, she just wanted me to be a school teacher. You know, she did not understand what I was doing. Yeah. So she didn't come to my trial. I, I didn't have a, a jury trial. I decided I wanted to talk directly to the judge because the whole thing was terrifying to me. But I felt I could talk to the judge. So I did. So. But you were willing to go to, to prison. Yes. I don't know how I would have fared in there, but I didn't have to go to prison. Tell me why you were willing to go. Big, you know, I... I was against the war. I believed what what I was hearing from David Harris. I examined it. It all made sense. We we were we had lost control of our own lives. You know, had it been World War II, maybe it would have been different. But this was we're attacking an agrarian economy. We're basically we got these weapons. You know, the guys, the kids that grew up sticking the firecracker up the cat's ass. Now they're in the government and they develop these weapons, they want to try them out. Let's try them out over there. Let's try some Agent Orange. Let's try some carpet bombing, et cetera, et cetera. That's what we tend to do. And if you want to stop it, you have to non-cooperate. You have to pull yourself out. And in order to get uh, political change, you have to be willing to pay the price. And we felt that if we were willing to pay the price, we might be able to affect the outcome, and it, it ended the draft. How many people were are, were and are in the resistance? Well, assuming the resistance still exists. Uh, you know, I I go online. I think about around three thousand went to prison. 
tens of thousands refused induction and, and were tried and not sent to prison and so on. You just see different figures. It's really hard to figure that out. Mm-hmm. But uh, we're, we're around. We are doing a film uh, called The Boys Who Said No, and it, it shows our story, exactly what we did, interviews and people going to court and refusing induction. And it's set against the carpet bombing, which the youth of today, they don't understand that either. So it's graphically shown right off the gate, carpet bombing, burning of villages, and then you start hearing from the people who took actions similar to mine, and all of them went to prison. Um, it's pretty convincing stuff, and I watched it's not what out you there. sent me, um, and I do hope that 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 film gets finished and and put out because what I watched was not only moving, but sadly, it's as relevant now as it was then. The idea that a government just blindly leads us around by the jowl. We have to know what's going on, and so many of us have our heads in the sand because it's more comforting to have the sand over the years, you know, than to actually know what's going on out there. And again, that idea, so many people I talk to, many who don't vote, but even those who do think, oh, well, it just doesn't matter. We don't have a voice. And it's so frustrating because that's exactly what a government wants. I don't care which government, pick a government. That's what they want you to think, that the people have no voice, that they have no power. But look at what's going on right now in Hong Kong. Yes. Well, there's a lot of good signs out there. For starters, my belief is it's one soul connecting to another soul. That's what life's about for me. And in the recent years, finally, there's there's more uh, rights and opportunities for for gays, lesbians, transgender, transsexual, they're starting to take public office. So there's a there's a trend going on there that can be built upon. And we feel, the resistance, those of us that are left, is that people need to understand this lesson that, that for a lot of social change, it's not just like, I'm going to stop using plastic to drink out of. You're going to have to, at some point, pay a price. You might have to commit civil disobedience in order to have social change. It's, it's crucial, as I see it. The Peace Press was born out of the fact that during the Vietnam War, you couldn't get printing done. So, you know, like, I want to print this poster against the war or the draft. And nobody would do it. And so uh, this guy, Jerry Palmer, he was a, he was a, doctoral candidate at UCLA and he dropped out and he bought a press, put it together and he taught himself printing, then he taught us printing. So we started to, we were able to do our own printing. And, um, you know, I got involved in that and we started to print for other people. And then finally we, we realized it was kind of volunteer work. You know, we'd come in at night after a day's work and print some stuff for people. And uh, we finally realized, that why don't we make this our job, learn how to print so we can print commercially, and then we can give away printing for 
this, these movement people, and that's what we did. And we had, it was an unusual group. We had a, a professor from UCLA who gave us, all men in the class got A's so they wouldn't be uh, drafted, etc. He was, I think he was booted out of there, Sterling Robbins. We had the co-founder of Spark, worked at Peace Press, Christina Schlesinger, whose father was Arthur Schlesinger Jr. of the Kennedy Camelot cabinet and so on. And people just, you know, volunteered to do it. So we started printing for all these groups who also couldn't get their printing done. And we printed for hundreds of groups. And we did it for 20 years. Wow. And you brought this book for me to look at, Peace Press Graphics Art Book. And it's lovely and inspiring. And it's available for people. They can purchase that, correct? Yes. To see the history of what you have done. Center for a Study of Political Graphics, that's where you would you'd contact them and they they have the books and you can buy them from them. I'll put a link on the Hey Human page. Uh, okay, since you brought it up, <laughs> let's talk about the family. I am curious what the story is. So uh, when I was, the family was breaking up and you know, my my mother had uh, sued for divorce and so on a couple times, and then they would get back together, reconcile, and so on. And I think basically my dad was trying to figure out, well, I'll come back together and I'll figure out how to get the money and get the hell out of here. So he bought a new car, and one day he told me his car's in the driveway and it's got all kinds of stuff, and he goes, going out for pork chops, and I'll be back pretty quick. And he never came back. And, you know, that bothered me for years and years and years and you know I would consult psychics and so on and so forth and finally you know I you know I stopped drinking and drugs and I heard somewhere that well you can track down people through um, Salvation Army and so I sent them his name and I found that he had a, an alias I think he did some petty crime when he was young sent this off, sent him 20 bucks. And in the meantime, I was talking to my childhood friend and he reminded me, he says, that's right, your dad went out for pork chops. I'd forgotten that uh, when I was 16 years old. He reminded me that that's what happened. And so after about nine months, I got a letter and it said, look, we don't tell you if we found your father we tell him you're looking for him. And if he wants to contact you, he'll do it. And so one night I came home and there was a uh, message on my answering machine. So, this is your dad. Anything wrong? Uh, if you want to get a hold of me, and he leaves this address to write. So I played the message for my mom. And she said, what are you looking for him for? I played it for my aunt. She said, what are you looking for that heel for? Played it for my brother. He stole my coin collection. What are you doing that for? And I didn't know what to do, so I didn't really do anything. A few months later, I was taking my, I was finally going to get married, and I was bringing my fiance over to meet my mother. And the phone rang, and my mother goes, It's probably your father, you know, and it was. And I picked up the phone, and so he's asking me about, you know, what. So what happened? He said, is anything wrong? And I go, yeah. He says, your mother died. Because he cut himself off from everybody. And I says, 
your daughter, my sister, she died a couple years ago. He didn't know any of this. And he goes, uh, yeah, what about you? And I go, well, you know, I graduated from college, you know, at UCLA. I was a draft resistor and I'm an alcoholic. I was an alcoholic. And he goes, did you do drugs? I go, go, yeah, I did drugs. He goes, that's what I figured. I figured you'd become a drug addict. And he said, uh, do you... Um, do you need any money? I said, no, I'm, I'm fine. He says, well, look, you write me and I'll write you back. So I sat on and I wrote him a, a letter and I thanked him for the parts of my character I thought came from him. He was really pretty honest guy, you know, uh, when, when this family in our neighborhood was going to move and they were pissed and they decided to sell to Negroes, uh, the whole neighborhood rose up and had meetings and my dad wouldn't participate. He just wouldn't do it. And he was the only person that wouldn't participate. That can make you an outcast. But anyway, I respected uh, uh, some of the things in his character. So I wrote him a thank you about that. And I get this letter from him. And there's a check for $500 in it. And it's in an account in my name and my brother's name. Like he's never forgotten us. And... He said, this is for you and your mother. It's your birthday, you know, they're a week apart. So, and then he writes this letter. He says, well, you know, I I uh, lived in the streets of, of Reno for a long time. He said, I won a lot of much money gambling. And, you know, I was drinking. He says, I quit that. And he goes, gets to the end of the, well, by the way, the envelope says, Paul Zaw, cell three, block H, Nevada State Prison, Carson City, Nevada. I had to get on my knees and pray just to open the letter. And so I find this check. I find this letter. He gets to the end of the letter and he goes, by the way, I'm not in jail. He says, I, I remember you used to have a good sense of humor. I hope you still do. So I take this letter to my mother oh my and, and I show it to her and cash a check. And, you know, I... I guess they, they, they sent a couple letters back and forth. And then they, he called me again. And I said, well, would you like me to... He didn't drive. I said, would you like me to come pick you up for a visit? He said, no, that's, that's not a good idea. So in the, the spring, I got married. And I drove with my wife to Nevada and had this activist, civil disobedience uh, priest marry us. Then I came back and we went to Gardena to visit my mother. And my father answered the door. It had been 29 years. And he moved back in with my mother. Oh, my God. Really? <laughs> really. Holy and God. it extended her life because she was literally at the point where we were going to have to do something about it. Like, she was not going to be able to live alone. And, and to move out would kill her. And here he comes back out of the blue to make a living amends. And it extended her life. She would, she would have lasted like a few months or something. Wow. She lived another five years. And as soon as she died, he said, well, you know, I never talked about my health, but I'm not well. And he says, I've done everything I need to do, and I'm not afraid to die. And then he proved it. And, uh, and he, he passed. Yeah, he passed, but he was in hospice care and at home and, and he was fearless. Hmm. Quite a lesson. So that's that's what happened. It's wow. an incredible story that, that incredible. he would come back and and stay there. Why and do you think he did there. that? 
I don't know, but uh, I'm glad that he did. It, yeah. was, it was good. So you grew up, it was you, your brother, and your sister. My sister died in 1989, and my brother died a month ago. Oh, and my And he gosh. was completely out of touch with everybody. He was just was was not a happy guy, and so I hadn't talked to him. I talked to him a couple times a year, mm-hmm. but he was just angry. And and I got a call from the coroner that he died, and they didn't have any way to identify him. Died in his house. So. Wow. So I, I didn't see him, and he he never. He wouldn't come around to visit my dad. I said, you really need to come here because... Were you and your brother he, close? No, we were n- never, Estranged. never really close. Not even, know. yeah. And your sister and you? We weren't that close either. The family wasn't that close. You know? Yeah. You know. How did your sister pass? She had uh, um, ovarian cancer. Mm. And, yeah, so it was kind of quick. They found out she had it, and she was, she passed kind of quickly. Wow, that's a lot. Where are you now with every with to know you? And I came to um, that screening the other day with Spy that you helped bring Gary. Can we can we talk about Gary a little bit? Sure. Um, I cried through that whole thing. It was so moving to me. Um, but let's just talk about then Go ahead um, and talk about how you met him and how that all... Well, back to Peace Press, we printed for everybody and everything. We printed for all of the people that were wrongly convicted. Fred Hampton, etc., you know, or murdered. Uh, Ellsberg, the Berrigan brothers. We printed for Gary Tyler, and he was a kid who was framed for murder at the age of 16. He was given... He was sentenced to death. He was the youngest person sentenced to death in America, he was given an execution date. And in 1989, I got a call from a lawyer in New Orleans. She goes, uh, this Bob Zaw with Peace Press? I said, yeah. She says, uh, do, you, do you know who Gary Tyler is? I said, yeah, we used to print for him. She said, well, we have, we have the votes to get him released from prison. And we need to get him a job outside of Louisiana. Can you do that? He studied graphic arts. And I said, well, you know, Peace Press, we actually closed two years ago. But let me see what I can do. I went to work, talked to the guy who bought it, and we got on a plane and we flew to um, New Orleans and the lawyer drove us to Angola Prison. And once, 42 years, by the way, Gary yeah. sat in prison. Yes. Well, he wasn't sitting. He was quite active. Yeah. What, a, what an amazing human being he is. Anyway, sorry. So once you meet Gary, where do I sign? I'll do whatever needed yeah, for this guy. Yeah, enigmatic, for sure. So Gary Schaffner, who owned, who had bought Peace Press, he said, yes, we'll, we'll hire him. And uh, so we came back to L.A., but my feeling was that this is going to take a while. It wasn't like, and they didn't let him out. Uh, I want to make sure there is that if NPA who bought offered him a job, they may have stopped printing someday. I want to get other things going for Gary. So I, I got the Venice Family Clinic involved, a place called Home. I found other people that would counsel him. I've got this guy Bob Timmons, who was a 
world-famous um, addiction counselor and a private parole officer. All these people signed up. Whoever you asked to help Gary, they said yes. It was automatic. But he just couldn't get out of prison. How, when they knew he was wrongly accused, they knew that they had done wrong by him, why would, were they not letting him out? Well, they believed they had the right guy. It, it was like a frame-up. You can go to Free Gary Tyler and read all about the mm -hmm. case. And the, the documentary is <clears throat> Cast the First Stone. And for all of you listening, uh, please watch it. It's exceptional. It's hard to find. I think you... I think it was on, actually, I saw it on Amazon Prime. I oh, think it was up there, at least the last time I looked. I but. think I just, I talked to the prison today. I talked to uh, the museum today at Angola Prison, and that's what they told me. They said it's on Amazon, mm -hmm. so... And I'll put links on Hey Human as well, yeah. so it makes it easy for people. When Gary spoke at this event the other day, he talked about how, you know, at 16, he was put into prison, not a, one of, a very scary prison, Angola, and he said that people stepped up to protect him, he said people that had killed people, people who had raped people, people who were not, they were the worst of humanity, stepped up and protected this little boy. And I found that extraordinary as well. The light, it's hard not to get emotional talking about him, but the light that he carries is, I don't know how somebody does that after being in prison for 42 years for something you didn't do. It is amazing. Among the people that stepped up were the Angola Three, who were the the guys in the U.S. who served the longest time in solitary closed cell restriction for over 40 years in solitary, and they stepped up. <clears throat> they they looked at Gary and they saw here's a 16 year old kid, 130 pounds or something. They set aside their their life of crime, the stuff they'd done in prison. They said this could be my son, it could be my brother, it could be my nephew, and they stepped up to uh, mentor him through. And, you know, he, he had some attitude when he was in there because he, he was wrongly convicted. He was upset. And he finally realized that this attitude won't do. And he just, he worked hard to change it. And he took on things that just gave him a character that you will not find anywhere. He did He's one of the original hospice volunteers, and so he did that for 17 years. And people who were dying, they asked him to be the person that escorted him from this life into the beyond. To Shepherd, yeah. Yeah. So. And now he works with SPY, which is an extraordinary organization as far as I can tell. You want to talk about that a little bit? It's called Safe Place for Youth. A good friend of mine started it. Our kids went to school together. She started feeding the homeless youth on the boardwalk in Venice. Just out of her car. <laughs> yeah, just walking up and down the boardwalk. Yeah. And then they finally got an organization going. And this organization it seems to be the organization that L.A. County is relying on. Because the problem with uh, the youth is most of them had really crummy upbringings, and many of them were in foster care. Then you get to the end of that, which is the age of 18 or whatever, and you term out, you have no place to go. And no you have skills, no jobs, no jobs yeah, right. sometimes no education. You may have been abused. You've likely been abused. So 
this is providing services for, for those people. And Gary's in there. Uh, now his story is finally out there, this event that you went to. He's been there two and a half years, but nobody there really knew his story. So you weren't the only one weeping in the audience. Most people were weeping in the audience when they heard his story. So he also ran the drama, drama club for 20 years in Angola prison, and he's uh, now starting to teach that. And you got, we got to see this skit, and I got to see him a few days before just talking these kids through the skit. And the performance that homeless guy put on, it was like for realsies. Yeah, I, everybody real. in the room just froze. They, I, a kid um, came in and, and said, you know, you all ignored me. And it was sort of that speech of the, of the preacher. The, the, do you know this, that story about the, the preacher who dressed, he was, he was going to uh, be the pastor at a new church, and he dressed up as if he were homeless, you know, dirty clothes and all that. And he sat on the road on the way into the church and everyone ignored him. And then he came into the church and came up to the pulpit and everyone in the church was aghast. And and he began his sermon. And <laughs> no, I hadn't heard that yeah. story. So it's but a, the way this one started. That's basically kind of what happened that and, day at the show. And Gary had it set up so that this kid would be outside panhandling outside this church, which yeah. is where this event was held. Yeah. And then he would sort of appear in the crowd later, and that's how that yeah. play went. It was pretty amazing. Yeah, it was. Uh, I, I saw people's faces like, oh, my God, what's happening? <laughs> I think they were just a little bit scared. Uh, um, so much. There's just so much. You, you have done a lot for this country and for humanity. Thanks. I, I try. Just, you know, I have an attitude of trying to be of service. And what <clears throat> what I try to do is I don't try to do anything for myself. I'm usually involved in a project that is going to help others. And that's kind of why they work, because I'm not out there trying to get my name in lights. Often you won't see my name anywhere on something I'm doing or just trying to make a connection for somebody that's trying to do something and that's developed a reputation where I can continue to do that. Uh, and Gary is, Gary's one of the chief people I work with. Anyway, that's, that's my secret. And also to be relentless, because I had to be relentless for 27 years before Gary got out of prison. And to find him a job. Actually, let me tell you that story. <clears throat> We were hoping to get him a job at a place called home where they have a theater and the the founder of it wanted to hire him but she had now retired and they didn't have the budget so i was i was driving with gary through venice and i said well i, I want to take you to spy and just want to show you this place and so he walked in and you know i've known the owner since before spy he says oh yeah you can tour but he says we don't have any jobs here bob there's no job for for gary she talked to him for a few minutes, and he, obviously she was impressed. That's Allison. Yes. So, you know, we we walked through, and we were leaving, and and so you know, we don't have any jobs here, Bob. I says, okay, that's I understand. I just wanted to show him one of the agencies of the type we would like to get him together with, 
And I said, but here's a, here's a video of Cast the First Stone. You get to see Gary directing. So I go home, and three hours later, I get a call from Allison, and she's crying. And she <laughs> yeah. goes, I just watched this video, and we have to hire this guy. Yeah. And it's not easy. Because to hire somebody who's been in prison, there's all kinds of rules and so on, alleged rules. You have to have a live scan, and you often never hear back. They just go, uh, you didn't pass a live scan or What's whatever. What's that? I don't know what that is. I'm not sure. Oh. They just look at your record. But the thing is, what I found out from the Venice Family Clinic and others is they just tell the county and say, look, I'm hiring this guy. This is who we're hiring. And Venice Family Clinic has, has, has hired people that are coming out of tough situation, mm. and they know that this is going to work. So they don't care what the, the county says. They go, this is who we're hiring. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's what happened with Gary. I think that Allison just said, no, this is who we have to hire. And then once people meet Gary, they're, oh, they're so sold on it. You know, Allison decided one day I'm going to find homeless kids on the street and help feed them and get them stuff they need. You, in your life, decided I'm going to speak up for people that don't have a voice and try and make a change. Gary, who while incarcerated for a crime he didn't commit, was, was a mentor and an educator and an acting teacher and did all these things for people. I think the, the idea that one person can't do something, one voice, one action, one standing up for the underdog. That's true. That's true. It helps if you have charisma. Yeah, but you don't need charisma to, to make a change in the world. No. I mean, Allison, you know, handing out food from her car is just a person wanting to do some good and to help someone that needs help. That's kind of the thing. It's like, I think human beings think that in our own little world, there's nothing we can do, that the world is so full up of problems that it seems insurmountable, it's Sisyphean, and it's not. I just, I think it's important that people remember that, that one is plenty. Do good, do good, help each other. One hand holding another to cross the river is enough. That's absolutely true. I just, I'm honored to have you here. Oh, thank you. I like your podcast. <laughs> thank you. And they're not easy to do. I worked on a TV show and interviewing is a skill and some people don't have it. You've got it and... Uh, well, thank you. Thank you. Tell people how they can find you. Tell them about all the cool stuff. So Peace Press is no longer really, but but you can be found through that, right? <clears throat> um, I think the, there's a website or two. Once in a while, people contact us. The stuff will get forwarded to me, and they'll have a question, and I'll try to answer it. Because I had the longest time there. I was there from beginning to end. Other people came and went. But, yeah. Uh, I try to answer the questions. But the, the Safe Place for Youth, safeplaceforyouth.org. 
The your, boys who said no. That's, the, yeah. That's okay. Yeah. Let's one. go there. The boys who said no. Tell me about where we're going to be able to find that and when. Well, I just got an email today. They're they're going to try and submit it to Sundance in 30 days. It would you know love to get it hit in uh, to be able to get into some good festivals. The director is an Oscar-nominated director. You've seen at least half the film. I've seen half of it, yeah. It's, it's pretty good. Yeah. And there's, uh, you know, trying to raise the rest of the money to pay for the music and so on. Yeah. And I would so, have watched the other half had you sent it. <laughs> I might be able. I finally got the whole movie. Yeah, it's so good. I'm going to be doing a couple of uh, fundraiser house concert type things where I take it to a house and show it to 20 people and see if they'll make Great. some donations. Perfect. That's what I'm planning to do. Is there a website for donating for that? Yeah, I think just theboyswhosaidno.com. Bob, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening, everyone. Please rate and review Hey Human on iTunes. Bye.